we know that the science is scarily clear that we must make big progress fast, which means we gotta, we gotta do things we're not used to doing. And I actually have an example that I just learned from this conference, which is the, the new building code has been negotiated uh, between the province and the municipalities here, which I think is just incredible, where the huge majority of them voluntarily have agreed to go to a net zero performance no later than 2032, and many of them, I understand, are jumping much faster than that. And if we can go to net zero in light speed and let that bleed to the rest of North America, you know, hallelujah. Hallelujah for sure. Hey, welcome back to Three Things, the podcast that provides plain language conversations about the leading energy solutions to climate change. This is a special edition recorded live at the State City Collaboration for Clean Energy Transformation. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that was the name of the event hosted by Renewable Cities on the sidelines of the recent Clean Energy Ministerial in Vancouver. Today we're going to talk about the role of cities in the energy transition and the options they have to provide climate solutions. With all that out of the way, let's meet today's guests. Hi, it's Alex Boston. I'm the Executive Director of Renewable Cities and a fellow at the Morris J. Wass Center for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University. Uh, my name is Mike McKeever. I'm currently uh, working with the Mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg. Before that, I was for 15 years the head of the regional planning agency in the Sacramento area region. And I'm Ken Alex. Uh, I'm the director of something called Project Climate at UC Berkeley. Um, and that's very recent. Before that, I spent eight years uh, working as the uh, director of the governor's office of planning and research uh, for Governor Jerry Brown in California. Well, we're here at the Renewable Cities Conference, the state-city collaboration on clean energy transformations in Vancouver. And uh, I'm wondering if I could just uh, ask you one at a time, I guess, uh, if you could tell me, sort of, give me the big picture, like what role will cities play in uh, helping governments reach their goals of the Paris Agreement? Well, the, the part of that equation that I've spent the most time on is in the land use and transportation field, which gets into the whole Fundamentally, that's about what's the urban form of an area. And the way the real world works, whether you're talking about um, economic markets or real estate markets or natural systems or air sheds, it's not cognizant of city boundaries. It's at a, it's at a metropolitan scale where those forces that influence how regions ebb and flow and cities and neighborhoods grow and decline. And so, it's the cities are the principal actors in that organism, but they're not the entire story. And the real issue is figuring out the webbing between the cities so that you can understand how, when you put them together as a package, they operate as a system and what you can do to influence that, tinker with it, to optimize it, to drive down travel and pollution and carbon dioxide and those sorts of issues. Alex, let's uh, ask you, um, what is the role that cities will play in helping senior governments meet the goals of the Paris Agreement? 
the authority and influence that local governments have, um, they just don't have the capacity to drive deep emission reductions themselves. But likewise, senior governments don't have. Uh, there's such split authority. I just got out of a session a few minutes ago. Uh, you have local governments that manage solid waste, but senior governments establish the solid waste management policy context and the energy context, there's immense potential for generating real value from our organic waste and converting that into renewable natural gas. Uh, but in order for that to happen, we really have to align local and senior governments uh, and, and have better governance regimes. And that's fundamentally true around land use and transportation too. Ken, I'm going to ask you the same question. What's your take on the role of cities in the, the larger challenge that we face? Well, let me just add a few things to what Alex and, and Mike already said. They're, they're basically, there are five areas that we have to reduce emissions, transportation, energy, buildings, short-lived climate pollutants, and working in natural lands. Those are the five big areas that we have to make progress on. Cities are part and parcel of each one of them. Um, but as Alex just said, they can't do it alone. However, they're often the most nimble uh, and they're, they're the closest to the emissions themselves in many instances. The estimate is about 75% of emissions come from urban uh, sources. And so we have to figure out uh, how, to, how to create incentives that are sufficiently long-term that we stay with it. That's not always the easiest thing for cities to do. Sometimes states and federal governments are better at that. So uh, there's a huge interdependency and, a, and a, a dynamic among the various forms of government, um, but the cities are really quite central. You mentioned that uh, cities have, uh, I guess, authority over, you said 75% of emissions or, 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 or occur within an urban context, I guess is how we might put that. And cities are also on the front lines of impacts uh, and adaptation and having to rebuild storm sewer systems that were built for a different era and so forth. I'm just wondering, like, when, it, when we talk about funding, um, do cities have what they need or do they have the tools to get it, to finance and to, to fund both mitigation and responding? Well, we, we got right to the crux of it. The, the answer to both is no. Uh, they they don't have the funds they need and and right now we don't have the means it's been you know another estimate is that for the world to con to do what we need to do the investment is something like 40 trillion dollars clearly that's not going to come from government um, a portion of it will uh, rules and regulations will um, but cities uh, are often the uh, the last entity to have uh, direct financial revenue. Somebody just said they get 12 cents on every tax dollar. That makes sense to me. So, so the answer is that the dollars aren't there yet. Now, the question about financing, um, a lot of that needs to be private, um, and we don't have the mechanisms created yet to do that. There, there are all kinds of interesting potential uh, sources like you can finance cleaner water um, because that's a, a commodity at some point. Um, so there is a lot of, th uh, of thought and effort going into it, but it is one of the biggest issues and hurdles. Mike, I'm gonna ask you next that one. Um, given that you are uh, working with a, a local government, uh, Sacramento, uh, 
what uh, investments or, or shifts or, or levers have you done to overcome that, that gap? Um, I know active transportation is a huge priority in Sacramento. Well, we're the, the city, uh, in collaboration with two other cities, has just recently implemented a bike share program, which to our delight quickly became the highest ridership per capita per bike in the entire country. Uh, probably has something to do with we're flat and have a wonderful climate, and so we don't have rain and snow much to deal with. Uh, but still, it That's was very... That's an unfair advantage. <laughs> cheating. I lived in Portland a good part of my life, so I get it, I get it. But it's still, it's, it's encouraging to see uh, change happen that quickly. As soon as those bikes became available, they just started to be used. The, um, and within California, there's, of course, been a big push to uh, not just more efficient uh, fossil fuel motors, but ele uh, electric vehicles and setting up charging station networks. And so we're not where we need to be, but we're fairly far down that road. We have the, we have the, uh, the odd uh, benefit of the, the sin that Volkswagen committed of, of faking their diesel emissions and so we're the capital city of California, and, and we've ended up with a very substantial commitment uh, through a legal settlement from Volkswagen to promote, promote electrification of the vehicle fleet uh, in, the, in the city of Sacramento. I will say on the general issue, it's the theme of this conference and really the, the, uh, the culture and personality of this university and the, and the organization that Alex runs is collaboration and dialogue. And you're, you're, you would just hear this from us over and over. I, nobody can do this on their own. The benefit of the cities is they're close to the ground and their politicians tend to be the closest to the people, particularly the mayor of a city. is very well known, they, they're noticed in the grocery stores, they walk down the and, but the, the regional agencies, the state government, and even the national government to some extent are critical partners, but their politicians are much further removed from the people. So this, somehow we have to find the magic sauce where all of this aligns to the same need. Ken, is this a kind of question that Project Climate is going to be tackling? Uh, you know, the, the, the suburban-urban divide, as it were, the, the, the different costs in financing infrastructure. Are those within the scope of the, the work you're going to be doing, or are you focused more on technologies uh, and, uh, and policies? The idea of Project Climate is to identify uh, some of the most promising climate solutions, whatever they may be, whether they're social science or financing or technology. And then, given my background in government, the question is how do you then take those promising solutions? We're, turns out we're better at the solutions in some ways than we are at figuring out how to move them to policy and to scale. So my background, uh, hopefully my skill set, uh, is trying to figure those things out. Um, so if there's a, an interesting financing approach, we're very interested. If there's an interesting technological approach, we're very interested. And one thing that I, I, I was thinking about when I was listening to Alex talk about the cost of you know, uh, public transportation, one thing that may be uh, an interesting idea is using autonomous buses um, in designated uh, uh, bus lanes 
which gets us away a little bit from the problem of autonomous vehicles interacting with people and traffic sort of more universally, um, which also might create a, a, a last mile solution that cities can afford. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's possibilities around reducing the cost of transportation that we need to be creative about. Mm -hmm. And it's one reason that we need to have different cities take different approaches and see what happens. Right, so that would be a, a sort of an adapted or an, uh, an upgraded bus rapid transit, exactly. dedicated corridor, um, but without a driver. So you take advantage of all those And if you tie that, if you tie that with, with a higher density thoroughfare, yeah. um, you know, again, not building out a, t a tower, but maybe uh, the, the scenario planning review that I've seen is maybe a four-story kind of um, level, uh, then you can combine those things and have a transportation system that people find very usable, you increase densities, you save land use and reduce emissions in multiple ways. Mike, what if that involves taking a, a lane away from vehicles, private vehicles, traffic, where the mindset out there is, is, is not there yet in terms of the longer term and people just want to see more lanes added uh, to roads to quote unquote relieve congestion. How do you, and Vancouver has struggled with that enormously. It's a struggle everywhere. Well, what people really want, they might say they want lanes, but what they really want is to be able to get where they, where they need to go. They, they, they want access to their place of employment or their shopping center, their school and whatnot. And transportation planners over the last two or three decades have figured out that there are many, many more effective, both cost effective and just plain effective ways to accomplish that than building new freeway lanes. So if you convert that lane to dedicated transit, maybe high occupancy vehicles, maybe it's a, some of them are toll facilities where you can, you can, you can buy your way in if you're still the single occupant driver, but that money's gonna be plowed back to improving the active transportation system or something like that. There, there are ways, there are more, let me put it this way, there are more ways to improve accessibility to daily lives through taking lanes away and converting them to alternative means of transportation than there are adding more lanes for single occupancy cars. It's always going to be a political struggle though around education and how hard can you push and what time and, and the constraints of a limited election cycle. Um, you know, if you don't show real results within your mayor's term, you're, you're, you could be toast. Alex, how do you get past that in, in your mind? Yeah, I'll, I'll go back to an earlier comment that Mike said. You know, dialogue is terribly important, and we often don't run very effective engagement exercises. Um, and then, you know, what, what Ken made reference to earlier is uh, the importance of providing very helpful analysis to be able to understand those trade-offs and, and, and what some of the advantages are. Like, we have a housing stock that doesn't meet the needs of our, our current demography. We also have a, uh, transportation regimes that aren't meeting the emerging needs of, of our demography. We, you know, th this, th this region just lost a big, big uh, bus rapid transit project in, in, one, uh, in, in one municipality uh, because it was opposed by a community that is overwhelmingly um, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90 years old. Um, what isn't a deep appreciation is the demand 
for, rapid, for, for, for transit service as people age is really important. People are fleeing this community because they can't find multifamily. Um, and they're, they're, uh, this moving people close to you know, pharmacies and grocery stores is really important as your age and life, but having transportation services around, but that wasn't at all part of the, the debate. And that was because tragically, a solution was foisted upon people and it wasn't um, really, a, there wasn't a really effective engagement. We have to figure out creative ways in which we can, uh, you know, protect parking as we transition into some of these options. So maybe we're using uh, laneways um, for parking, right? Maybe as, as Mike said, it isn't exclusively um, for bus, maybe it's bus and HOV, right? So, you, you know, and you steadily increase the number of, of occupants, but we do have to think creatively and not go in with, um, with solutions that are um, pretty much final um, and expect people to accept them when for, you know, 50 years, this hasn't been the norm in their community. I wanna chime in on this. I think you have your finger on a really important challenge, which is the transitory feature of, of democracy, you know, where we don't, we don't have kings or queens who serve, you know, for their entire lifetime. We, we like to change out our elected officials and uh, keep them humble. Uh, and it's obviously a huge strength of, of the democratic societies ar around the, the world, but it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's even more challenging is the economic, the, the, I think the capitalist culture of the quarterly balance sheet and profit statement, and that's even a shorter time frame than your, than your electoral cycles. And the cities, in, in my observation, who have succeeded, who do the best, build their own cultures and identity, and I don't know any other way to say it, that that last no matter who is elected to office. And in my lifetime, the one that has done the best at that has been Portland, Oregon. I mean, and, and really, to some extent, the entire state, but, but for sure the region. They, they, for 20 or 30 years, have just bought into the whole sustainability mindset and framework and agenda. And they have developed a very broad and deep intelligence quotient about what that means. They just keep getting better and better at it. And so, you know, they elect their politicians on the same cycles that everybody else does, but nobody can get elected who goes outside of that culture because the, the grassroots people have seen its benefits and believe in it and insist that their elected leaders honor it. So that's a social science kind of yeah. like there's a there's a uh, there's a secret sauce that they've figured out there. I, I wonder how we might transfuse that elsewhere uh, across the continent. I mean, Vancouver might say it's figured that out as well. Yes, uh, I think Vancouver could rightfully say that. Yeah. In, in, actual, in actual fact, it's, it's been said by planning directors from the city of Vancouver that are now retired that one of uh, the real advantages of his experience as a director of planning is it didn't matter if it was a slightly left of center or a right of center and now we actually have a new um, council that's comprised of no party within it, with, a, with a majority and a mayor that doesn't have any representation on council but they continue to plod forward in the same direction. But I think this is actually uh, some of that 
secret sauce exists uh, only in your urban hub communities. So that's that's a, that, that's uh, the city of Portland and it's the city of Vancouver. Um, and one of our challenges is working in in these community the ra the most rapidly growing communities in in, in North America is the, our suburban communities, um, where uh, the sustainability priorities don't naturally align um, necessarily with some of uh, the, the the expectations in the in, in those communities. So I'm I'm not entirely buying this. <laughs> um, I think Vancouver and Portland are quite affluent, mm -hmm. and that makes a big difference. And I I you know I think they're going to face some real stressors like the rest of us with climate, um, and that could go in a couple of directions. I think right now about the center of, of the U.S., the Midwest, and, and uh, cyclones, 14, 15 straight days, completely unprecedented. Well, does that start to get communities to think differently about their, their elected officials and climate denials? Um, you know, many of those states are climate denier states uh, in terms of their elected officials. On the flip side of that, Portland and Vancouver, they're both coastal cities, they're going to be facing really substantial resilience sets of issues from the ocean, from, from snowpack issues, et cetera, et cetera. Can they survive as the population starts to think, wow, the, the lifestyle we had is, is going away? And I think from both sides, we're going to see upheaval and change. And so part of my view is that we have to develop political will that thinks about the issue of climate change broadly and that upheaval is something that we have to fight through uh, with better policies that uh, kind of get at the underlying set of issues around GHG emissions and the like. Interesting. So what I'm hearing from you, Ken, is that the coming, the looming impacts that we're going to see are going to really start to take the attractiveness edge off of these great spectacular cities that are all about mountains and recreation and the creative economy and so forth. Like a lot of the big reason that they're, they, they attract so much heat and energy and, and, and um, investment, let's be honest, is they're great places. Yeah. So, but when you're choking with smoke from well, fires. Well, I, you know, I, I just don't know. I think it's gonna be a challenge, but, but you're right. I mean, San Francisco, um, even though it wasn't you know, in the middle of fires, you couldn't breathe. And so that suddenly, that creates uh, a, a lot of different stressors on a city that people, you know, want to be in and, and has brought a huge amount of wealth and affluence um, and makes it an easier city to, to, to make decisions about planning that um, maybe others can't. Mike, are you going to take this sitting down? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll offer a little bit of friendly d debate here. I, I won't wade in on Vancouver because I, I don't know enough about it to do so, but I certainly do feel like I do about Portland. And I, I don't think either city was born great. I think, I think they became great because they did a lot of very, very smart things. And they're exactly the kind of things that will increase their odds of being able to manage some of the nasty effects of climate change that they, like everybody else on the planet, obviously are going to have to deal with. Uh, I also don't think it's just accurate to characterize Portland anyway as an affluent community. They, they 
and to some extent that they're economically healthy now, it's because I would argue the things that they've done to try to grow inward and keep the jobs in the center city and build enough housing that people can actually afford to live there. I, I don't want to uh, get too negative about the city where I live now, but just to, just to juxtapose, Portland builds in an average year the last five years approximately 15,000 multifamily units a year. And that's a substantial share of the whole regional housing stock. So the, the whole region is growing in, inward. Sacramento has been struggling to build 1,000 multifamily units a year. During that same time period, we built 4,000 last year and we're celebrating the fact that we quadrupled the number, but, we're, but Portland is still quadruple again ahead of us and the population of the two cities is virtually identical. Mm. Got to go up, not out. Yes, but I, I, I really ag ag agree that it doesn't, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't mean 20 story buildings don't have their place here and there, but you, the form you need is four, six, eight stories. I mean, the, Europe is famous for having dense cities and you know Paris, one of the best, most walkable cities in the world is full of six and eight story buildings. They don't, you know, they put all their tall buildings, you know, in suburban Paris. <laughs> I want to wrap this up, but I want to get from each of you just a quick snapshot of your take of like, what do you see as the most promising solution? So we'll keep it really broad, uh, you know, noting, Ken, that you're, you're looking at all kinds of different aspects. Um, could be a policy, an emerging technology uh, that you think is interesting that, that cities would directly uh, be able to access and would play to their strengths that would be a, a leading solution to this issue, to, to tackling climate, to driving down emissions. Alex, do you want to start? Sure, and it's, a, it's not a technical solution. It's a, taking advantage of the hollowing out of our single family neighborhoods. And it's something that involves zoning renewal locally, zoning renewal at state and provincial levels, and uh, integrating and diversifying conservation centers to consider occupancy. So in, in, in this jurisdiction, and it's very similar across all of North America, we have more one-person occupied single-family homes than single-family homes with three, four, five or more people. You know, the great work that's been done in, in Portland on accessory dwelling units, um, you know, additions onto single-family homes in this uh, city, uh, laneway housing, in you know, secondary suites, but we have to look at stratification of single family homes. We have to look at bringing social service agencies in to do uh, uh, online dating programs so, so solo seniors can meet one another um, and, and um, have small little co-housing projects or a, a social service agency come in and retrofit a home so that it can accommodate a secondary suite and manage it on behalf of a 60, 70, 80 or 90 year old that doesn't want to become a landlord for the first time in their life. So intensification. Yeah, is so this is gentle about. intensification gentle of our existing sim single family fabric because that's, that's more than 50% of our housing stock uh, in, 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 you know, writ large and, you know, across British Columbia, across Canada. Um, it's a little more than that in the United States. This is a huge untapped op opportunity for addressing affordability, um, uh, uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also addressing social isolation, which is growing. The fastest growing um, single-family homeowner is the one-person homeowner. And it's not because they went out to buy a home. It's because, you know, the kids have left home, dad has died, and mom is left alone at her home, right? Rattling around. 
And it's not that every one of them is, uh, is socially isolated, but it increase your risks dramatically. So we need to think about how we uh, break down silos to address uh, some of these complex issues uh, in an integrated manner. And that brings, you have to bring local governments together, senior governments, you have to bring uh, departments of health, uh, municipal affairs of housing and energy management and utilities, all of them together. And that's complex and that's why really we have uh, you know, the, 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 the urgency for better coordination between levels of government you know, vertically but also horizontally okay. across government. Okay, all right, so you're breaking my rules a little bit. You've rolled quite a few things into your one favorite. <laughs> yeah. But I think I've, I've caught the essence of it there. And, and what I like about it as well is that it's a solution that solves many things. Climate just is almost like a co-benefit totally. uh, yeah. for all the other social issues. Uh, uh, Ken, I want to uh, pick your brain next then. All right, I'm going to break your rules too. I'm going I'm to give you two quickly. Uh, the first is, um, uh, cement and concrete that sequesters uh, CO2. Um, there's both Canadian and California companies working on this and, and it's going to require a lot of coordination, federal, state and local, um, because you don't really want to have a, a cement or concrete that crumbles after a few years. So you have a regulatory regime that you need that could be state or federal um, and, and then you have to have building codes that adopt uh, the need to uh, change your cement, which is otherwise a huge source of uh, GHG emissions, and it can become a sink. And then second, I am really uh, taken with uh, what is broadly called climate smart agriculture. Um, the ability of uh, cultivated agriculture and ranch land in soils in particular to take up a huge amount of CO2. Um, California, France, uh, some places in Mexico are some of the world leaders on this. Um, it has the ability to sequester a very significant percentage of, of the world's uh, CO2. And obviously it has some relationship to all levels of government because every jurisdiction in the world has uh, agriculture, uh, barring just maybe just a few. And protecting green belts around cities, obviously, Absolutely. is the opportunity there as well that, that ties in. So, interesting. Okay, um, Mike, can you top that? Well, I love your question because we know that the science is scarily clear that we must make big progress fast, which means we got we to gotta do things we're not used to doing. And I actually have an example that I just learned from this conference, which is the the new building code, that may not be the right term here, but the, has been negotiated uh, between the province and the municipalities here, which I think is just incredible, where the huge majority of them voluntarily have agreed to go to a net zero performance no later than 2032, and many of them, I understand, are jumping much faster than that. That's a perfect example of you know, buildings is only one of five sectors, as Kiz said, but it's a pretty important sector. And if we can go to net zero in light speed and let that bleed to the rest of North America, you you're know, talking, hallelujah. You're talking about the energy step code, just yes. so I'm clear. Yeah, here, okay? I knew I had the terminology and that's a, wrong. That's a model that uh, could be picked up elsewhere of, 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 of setting a hard target and then encouraging local governments to run with it. Right, and building, you know, building permits get issued every day. So if local governments will move there faster rather than slower, you can start harvesting 
huge savings immediately. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining me and having me in your earbuds today. And a special thanks to Robert Wiemet, whom you can find at podcasthouse.ca. Uh, who provided extensive technical support for this episode. And also the staff of Renewable Cities at Simon Fraser University for their help and support in helping make this conversation possible. Please do us a favor and follow us on Twitter at 3ThingsEnergy and or leave us a review in your favorite podcast store. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.